Welcome to the agroinnovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade, globalization, and organics. Today we are featuring a get-together that was here in the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the get-together was a group of people getting together to talk about food, the politics of food, and the featured speakers were Phil Pohl of Sandia National Laboratories, who is in charge of Sandia's food, water, and energy program. And Phil will talk a little bit about food politics, followed by Greg Gould, who is an expert on foodology. So let's get started and listen to this talk by Phil Pohl. Now, if you look at the first picture on my slide, it's food politics, national lab perspective. That picture is of some hydroponic livestock forage. We don't feed it to people, we feed it to livestock. And so about five years ago, I started working on agriculture and food security at Sandia. The mission at Sandia is exceptional service in the national interest. So anything under that umbrella is fair game. And in my opinion, global stability would create pretty good national security. And so over the last five years, I've been traveling all over, been to Mexico a dozen times. I hadn't been there 25 years before that. Been to Libya four times, been to Tunisia. I'll go to Morocco in a few weeks, El Salvador. And, and one thing I was telling Kate just now is that wherever you go, you find people and in general they're happy and one of the things that makes them happy is is their food and the things they eat and they're always interested in sharing their best food with you so so i'm really excited to be mm -hmm. here um uh let's see the other colorful picture on that front page is about food defense i have a project with fda for creating a software that would allow you to do a risk assessment or a vulnerability assessment of your food production process, okay? It's a computer program. It's supposed to be like the client said TurboTax, but I, I was hoping for more like Nintendo. But we've got a software that you can apply to your food production system and it gives you ideas on how to defend against a terrorist attack. That's where we get our funding at Sandia. So defense. Um, the definition of food politics I took from Wikipedia. Food politics is the political aspects of production, control, regulation, inspection, and distribution of food. The politics can be affected by ethical, cultural, medical, and environmental issues. So uh, you flip the page, there's been an awful lot written about food politics and this I think it's the first slide in the upper left is is just the table of contents of Marion Nestle's I don't know Marion Nestle's book on food politics she's at NYU now the map with all the arrows is something I borrowed from Jack Meisner and it's basically the chronology of a soda can and I won't go through all the steps, but suffice it to say, an individual aluminum can requires parts and materials from all over the globe being transported great distances 
being processed at high temperatures using large quantities of energy and takes minutes to drink and what seconds to throw away. One thing I noticed in that little summary, and it's produced by the guys that are with the, it's a quality book, but basically one thing they said is that the amount of energy necessary to mine the virgin ore and make the can is 20 times more than recycling a can. So if we would just recycle, and I think there's numbers, 84% of cans are discarded, so 88% production lost. The next big bar chart is the U.S. farm production expenditures. And we at Sandia are good at numbers. There was a time when I was the biggest user of the most powerful computer on earth. You could have tattooed nerd on my forehead, and I'd have been okay with it. I got a PhD out of it. But those types of numbers that you see there are, are, are things that we keep track of. So in a global sense, we like to know where all the materials are going and what fractions and to what ended value. Now the next two slides are both called Farm Bill. And in my opinion, that's one of the biggest issues facing the global food situation. There's a quote from Michael Pollan. He's a very popular and respected writer. But the Farm Bill, it was originally a bailout for farmers in the 1930s, bailout or, uh, and for unemployed workers. It's put up for re, how do you say that? Reauthorization every five years. Now this coming year, it, it, it looks like it's gonna be one of the biggest fights in the world. And the point of Michael Pullen's quote is that in the past, we all just pretty much assumed it was a farm state issue. Well, it's a $100 billion deal. It seems like we have legislators, we have uh, senators and so on, so, so we just need to get up and, and start asking our, our representatives to, to represent us on that subject because it not only offers us incentives and opportunities, but it also puts up roadblocks for organic and for uh, local growing and stuff like that. It is, in large part, operated and and owned by large corporations so why the farm bill matters and I got three notes if you pay taxes if you care about the nutritional value of school lunches if you worry about biodiversity of the loss of, or the loss of farmland then you have a stake in the billions the hundred billion dollars the next slide tells just about the dollar value of food in this country so all food revenue is about a trillion dollars okay so it's in Washington, they might say that that's getting to be some kind of money. So it's a lot more than I make. Uh, the organic revenue, by comparison, is, is quite a bit smaller than that at $30 billion. The farm bill, as I mentioned, is about $100 billion. New Mexico, our produce is $2 billion, okay? It's, it's not very much that, that we produce in the state. Mexico, our, our neighbor to the south, is, is about the same size as the farm bill. And then our imports to the U.S. are about about the same order of magnitude, $60 billion. Now that quote from Gandhi, I, I borrowed from a friend of mine uh, that, that, that's writing a book called Great Peacemakers. It's, there is enough in the world for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. It just seems appropriate. Question? Questions about uh, the Farm Bill and corn and ethanol, and I think there are probably significant provisions. I'm just not sure what they say. This other next slide, PETA and tax-free food, gives a number of 
bullet points on why it might be a good idea to allow vegetarians tax breaks because one point is that uh, scientists determine that raising animals for food generates more greenhouse gases than all the cars, trucks, and planes in the world combined. So it's, it's pretty significant. And, and, you know, the last point is most people can't afford a $20,000 hybrid car, but everyone can go vegetarian. Anyway, the, the last slide in this page is, is about the UNM food shed strategy that Bruce Milne is, is coordinating next month. And it's based on a, a network that, that was used in sustainability in the early 90s. There's a bunch of bullet points that, that they're going to try to address. We've been working with Bruce and look forward to working with him even more in the future in, in developing that program. Uh, on the back page is a, a slide on corn and biofuels. Okay, So basically, the result of the president's recommendation to move into alternative fuels is that food costs have gone up. Okay? Traditional cost for corn has been about $2 per bushel, and now it's about $4 per bushel. That ends up affecting not only the direct cost for corn that might be consumed, but then also all the other products that corn uses, like feed for livestock, like corn syrup, which is used in a lot of the sweeteners that, that are typically used. So, so corn biofuels, that's, there's, a, there's a huge relationship. and. And the alternative energy strategy by this country, I would say, is not optimum. And, 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 and Sandy is involved a, a great deal in making ethanol and myself biodiesel. But, and then on the next slide, I'm starting to conclude. And I, I, I steal a quote from Henry David Thoreau. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one striking at its roots. So, my recommendation is let's find the root of the problem and all get together and start hacking on the roots. So these two next paragraphs are sort of my conclusions. Most effective way to control a technology process is to see the relationships within the process and design each stage to be complementary with the others. And so for me, thinking about national security, I think that this depends on global stability and our ability to focus on creating complementary rather than adversarial relationships, okay? And, and understanding that as well. And then the diagram under national security, it's just something we came up with and, and we call it instead of national defense, a national offense, all right? And we own the, I think, web domains for that. Um, energy, water, and food. I, I like to study them all together, all right? We're the Department of Energy lab, so we're definitely going to get paid to do that and worry about the energy situation. Water we've been looking at over the last decade because, especially in this region, and in other parts of the planet where there's considerable stress, like the Middle East and, and, and other places like that, water is an issue. But you really can't think of those two in isolation. You have to consider food as well, because the question that was just brought up about corn to ethanol. And then also the amount of water used in food production. You can't deny that it's the biggest user and consumer of water. So what we like to do is study them all three together. So that's all I've 
planned to talk about. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. The acknowledgments on the back page, actually the wine, that picture is, oh, Columbia Crest. And I've been to that winery. We used to live in the Tri-Cities in Washington. It's right on the Columbia River in, on the border of Washington and o Oregon. Uh, Michael Taylor brought us six bottles of, of Columbia Crest wine. I think two of them are, I don't know how you put it, 90 rating, but they're, they're pretty significantly uh, well-respected wines. Now we have Greg Gould, who is a foodologist, who will be talking about his perspective on food politics. I'm going to take a little bit of a different ta tack, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my personal odyssey and uh, um, how uh, foodology came to be, and I'll try to give it a political slant. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying that my definition of politics is a combination of values and choice, and um, I believe that one of the fundamental units of choice is what we put in our mouths, what we put from the plate into our mouths, because it's a decision. And every time I put something in my mouth, I'm making a decision and I have choices. And one of the things I discovered is that uh, I don't really have that many choices, and that upset me. Um, but I'm gonna go back a little bit. I, I was in distance education at UNM, and they laid me off because technology uh, for video conferencing had been superseded by the internet, and so the courses were being delivered in another way, and I was downsized. And, I got another computer-related job, and I was, two years later, I was downsized from that, and I decided I needed a livelihood with a longer shelf life. And I started examining the things that uh, are important to me, what my values are, how I wanted to live, uh, and, and quality of life kept surfacing, and um, being of service to humanity kept surfacing, and eating great food kept surfacing. Uh, and uh, um, I was uh, aware that the quality of food I was eating wasn't uh, what I remember as a, as a child. And um, my grandfather was a, a chef, and my grandmother was a gardener, and so I had some of that in my background, and I was dissatisfied with the food I was eating. And as I was inventorying um, my interests and my values, food kept surfacing. And I thought, I'll become a food critic. And I realized quickly that I couldn't afford to go to the restaurants I wanted to review. And so I started thinking about the stratification of society and um, the cost of food. And that led me to other questions such as anorexia and uh, um, food disorders. and. All these things were about power. Uh, um, I interviewed a, um, his name is escaping me, but he's, he's a uh, food disorders doctor at UNM, and he explained to me that uh, um, when people choose not to eat, that's a form of exerting their power in a, in a limited arena. So all these things were bubbling up. Um, I was uh, seeped in the uh, fifth discipline uh, Sangi's book about holistic systems. Um, I was exposed to GIS, geographical information systems, and how information is uh, co uh, correlated and collated, and there are layers of information. And I started observing that uh, food 
um, lent itself to that sort of analysis that uh, in academia, economics, sociology, anthropology, history, religion, uh, medicine, agriculture, they're all distinct and separate, but food straddles them all. And food, to be understood, requires taking a little of all these different disciplines and so I decided that's going to be what I'm going to do. I'm going to study all these things. I'm not going to be a specialist. I'm going to be a generalist. And food is going to be the focus. And I started interviewing people and discovered the slow food movement, uh, dis discovered the sustainability movement, uh, discovered all these things that are already existing that supported my ideas and lent themselves to uh, a lifelong study. Um, what I love about food is that I can die uh, um, without having learned everything there is to know. Um, and that uh, I can devote myself to this and keep having interesting things to learn. It wasn't very long into this process that I tasted Pollo Real chicken that's grown in, uh, that is raised in Socorro. And I can't eat regular chicken anymore now that I've tasted the difference. And then I learned about the factory processes. And I realized that every time I eat a commercial chicken, I'm consuming the misery of that creature. And that led to other notions which brings us to globalization. Uh, at, what I believe is that uh, I'm a citizen of the world before I'm a citizen of any particular country. Uh, I happen to have been born in Europe, so I can say that. Uh, uh, I love America. I'm a patriotic person, especially when I'm abroad and people uh, attack America. Uh, um, but one of the things I've discovered, particularly in the food arena, is that our government has policies that are counter to each other. There is no consistency and cohesiveness in our way, the way our government works. There will be uh, the Food World Organization that bemoans the fact that in foreign countries, uh, uh, peasants are being moved off the land and forced to live in cities and slums because of uh, aggregating the land for agribusiness so that they can use machinery to grow things. What it is that, that I realized is that when I buy imported food, I'm buying into a system that takes people off the land in other places and that there's a connection between uh, my diet and my food choices and other people's well-being and misery. There's a movie called City of God, which is about the slums. And at no point is the question asked, why are they there? And they're there because they were moved. They were displaced off their farms where they were subsistence farmers. And I've observed that there's um, kind of a, a value judgment made about subsistence farming. I've had conversations with uh, UNM colleagues and their response, and this is one particular individual whose name I won't mention, uh, the, the response was, well, they could get computer jobs if they're in the cities. And they don't exist. The computer jobs don't exist. And, and that uh, the, um, 
the dignity of being able to provide for oneself by having a farm is uh, something that they no longer have a choice over. And I'm part of that. I'm inextricably part of um, this connection with these people uh, around the world. And that's politics. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end there. I hope that's provocative enough. And, uh, um, and I do want to say that uh, when I shop at the farmer's market and I eat locally grown food, I feel better. And I enjoy it more. So that's a plug for supporting local agriculture. Well, one, one of the things I love about food is we have no idea where it's going. Uh, there are a lot of projections. Uh, I've read uh, reports from universities that in the year uh, 2060, we will all be vegetarians, not by choice, but because it will be too expensive to actually raise cattle. And that uh, we'll be making different food choices by necessity, not because we've chosen that, but that's the way the world's going. One of the things that I find fascinating about politics is that uh, we make decisions and choices in one particular moment in time that make sense at that moment in time, and that 20, 30, 50 years later creates unintended consequences we had no idea about. Uh, uh, the example that I like to use is corn fed beef, which is unnatural and not something that uh, uh, farmers would use as a, a best practices. It was the result of um, um, dealing with the munition problem at the end of World War II. There were stockpiles of nitrates that they wanted to liquidate because they were dangerous and they no longer needed to make bombs. So they uh, um, some folks, I don't know who they are, they gathered together and they made a policy whereby they'd sell the nitrates uh, very inexpensively in the Midwest for uh, fertilizer. And they had bumper crops as a result and uh, more corn than they, than they knew what to do with. And some other policy folks got together and thought, well, let's eliminate the corn surplus by feeding it to cows. And that led to the feedlots, which was the efficient way of feeding cows, which led to uh, mar marbling in the beef and developing a taste for that marbling, um, which is unnatural. Doesn't, that's not the way cows actually digest. They, their great contribution to our um, way of uh, eating is that they turn cellulose into protein. Uh, corn makes them sick. It, it's not a natural food for cows. And these are the kinds of unintended consequences that come from policies that made sense at a different time. And one of my concerns is that we're doing that all the time. We're uh, on a regular basis making choices and decisions that we have no way of understanding what their impacts are going to be in 20 years from now. So I was taught that if you steal from one, it's plagiarism. And if you steal from many, it's research. So I'm going to borrow from a couple people here. The food politics book by Marian Nessel at New York University, she says that basically our over-efficient food industry must do everything possible to persuade people to eat more, okay? And, and, and then if you look at the farm bill, to a large extent, the farm bill determines what foods we eat, how they taste and cost, 
which crops are grown, under what conditions, whether we're prop properly nourished or not. So I, I think I, I, I love this country, just like Greg said, I'm, I'm patriotic and all, but the capitalistic system has caused man to always strive for more money or more possessions. And that leads you to usually follow the path of least resistance to the prize, never worrying about what it is, what in unintended consequences might be a result of that. So, so as far as my opinion about what is the most significant reason and issue with food, I think the government that has been set up in most particularly the farm bill is, is, is one of the things that's holding us back. And it's going to change whether we like it or not, 2060, all vegetarians. Uh, so the question is how much of the amount of food that we have is enough for people to survive. And I think the lady that wrote on food politics taught me that, that we make enough food in this country, I think, to feed everyone on earth. Um, that might be an exaggeration, but it, it, it's, it's of that order of magnitude. We have enough food on the planet, it's just in the wrong places, in the wrong hands. And so the challenge is to create systems or create opportunities where people can feed themselves. And it seems like a lot of the people, especially those in this room, are moving more towards a sustainable existence and a sustainable food production system so food is power and and food has traditionally been used to mani manipulate people and to keep them suppressed um, uh, there are all kinds of theories about why in India the ca this, the cow is sacred and they don't eat uh, cow meat um, the traditional um, interpretation is because they're better served as uh, dairy cows and they're better served as animals of um, burden uh, for plowing. There's another theory which is that the upper class, the Brahmins, wanted the lower classes a little bit underfed and having less protein so that they could keep the stratification of the society in place. And in the, our government over time has used uh, uh, food subsidies and, and food regulation to, for one example, is to reward uh, um, third world countries that are sugar producers that uh, follow our foreign policy and we have restrictions on the price of sugar in this country it's not the world it's not free trade uh, um, the price of sugar in this country is higher than the rest of the world uh, price for sugar and those third world countries that have uh, um, towed the policy line get to sell their sugar in this country at the higher rate and uh, um, we know that in this state, uh, um, we, we're one of the highest for child malnutrition and hunger. So we have enough to feed the rest of the world, but we're not even feeding people in our own state. Should we, should we be talking about power as well as food? Uh, uh, if we're talking about the farm bill, well, absolutely we're talking about power. And we're talking about our, the use of our taxes, we're talking about power and control. The, the way I like to think about it is that this is about our values and in America what we value is speed, 
uh, efficiency, um, time. Time is, is what we uh, uh, um, hold as a value, and we're always in a hurry. And, and uh, uh, food does not lend itself to that model. We can't speed up our digestion, and we can't speed up as a, to a certain point how quickly we can grow crops and how quickly we can raise animals. There, there's, a, there's a limit to how quick we can do things. And it's a question of values. And that was the end of the public forum at the Talk on Food Politics. This will be a continuing series. We anticipate having oh, approximately two more meetings, of which we will record them and publish them on this website. So if you found this podcast interesting, then please be sure to tune in for the future ones. Thank you to Kathy Domenici for giving us the opportunity to participate in this event. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. Stay tuned for our upcoming series with uh, mycologist Paul Stamitz, who is perhaps one of the most visionary mycologists of our time, who will be talking about mushroom cultivation and all different areas and how mushrooms can, in fact, help us save the world. Thanks so much for joining us. Saludos. Saludos.